Good morning, everyone. It's good to see you all. We're going to be in Mark chapter 3 this morning. And uh, can we give our worship team a hand for leading us in worship this morning? Thank you guys so much for that and uh, working in that new song. Uh, well done, well executed, um, and it's a great song. So hopefully that uh, we'll, we'll see that we'll see that again in the future. Um, but listen, we're very glad that you're here, and uh, I want to go ahead and just say that if you are a guest with us this morning, uh, you probably don't know who I am. I'm Adam Connor. I'm one of the pastors here at FBN, um, and we would love to just get the chance to get to know you. Um, we have a connect card. We have QR codes around. Like you can uh, scan that. You can let us know as much information about yourself as you would want us to know. Um, and we promise we won't be annoying about it. We'll send you a few automated emails and just kind of let you know what's going on at FBN. And we'd be glad to go any next steps with you as well. Um, but we'd love that opportunity to get to know you. So if that's you, you can fill out a guest card, a physical one, and you can uh, drop it off at the welcome desk right back here. Um, and if you want to just do it digitally, that's totally fine too. So we're going to jump into the Word together, but before we do, let's have a word of prayer together. Our God, thank you so much for this time that we've, that we've gathered here, uh, that we've come together to worship together and to just fill this room with our voices in and, and complete awe and adoration of you. Uh, you're so very worth every, every bit of it, Father. And so we ask that you receive the praise of your people today and that you would fill our hearts now uh, with your Holy Spirit, that we would uh, seek your word together and be moved uh, towards the heart of Christ even further. And God, that you would just um, um, use your word to convict and compel us into deeper following after your son. So we ask that you would do that work among us today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, I don't typically like to start um, sermons by talking about movies, but I saw a movie recently, and there was a line in it that I, I really was uh, compelled by, and so I'll tell you the context a little bit. Uh, Kenzie and I were watching this, and it was a pretty gritty movie, um, and it has, it, it has to do with a, a murder that happens at a military academy. And so in order to find out who, um, who did this murder, they hire an investigator played by Christian Bale, um, and he comes alongside, and he teams up with um, a member of the academy um, who goes by the name of Edgar Allan Poe. So it's kind of a fun twist. It's not a true story, by the way, but it is a fun uh, twist and, and use of those characters. And so they team up together to solve this mystery, and the movie escalates as more murders actually happen, and they still don't have a killer. And so the, the academy begins to question the investigator's competency if he has what it takes to actually find the killer. And so the officials confront him. And the con this conversation breaks out, and in this conversation, the investigator, uh, Christian Bale's character, goes on to imply that the rules and regulations of the academy make people less human, less stable, and more likely for something like this to occur. And the officials respond, and they say, are you implying that the academy itself is to blame for these deaths? And the investigator says, well, someone connected to the academy, yes, hence the academy itself. And the official quickly shouts back, that's absurd. By your standard, every crime committed by a Christian would be a stain on Christ. To which the investigator says, and so it is. And then he walks out of the room. And I just thought, hmm. Looked over to Kenzie and I said, well, it's not right, but he's not wrong. It doesn't seem fair. It's not right. It's based off a poor interpretation of Christianity, but he's not wrong. People are very quick to make assumptions about the Christian faith, about followers of Christ based on the actions of Christians. 
And maybe you even know people who avoid church, they avoid faith, they distrust the Bible, they even have skeptical views about Jesus. Why? Because a Christian offended them one time. Because a church offended them one time. And so they make a judgment call on the entire faith system. It's not right. It's not founded on the true interpretation of, of the Christian faith, but it is reality. It is reality. Christians are, are one, uh, they're just a scrutinized people group. And we shouldn't be surprised by this. I mean, Jesus himself said, he told his disciples um, that, that the world is going to hate you and persecute you because it hated me and persecuted me first. And the same is true with accusations and, and scrutiny. The world is going to do that to you because it did it to me First, and in our passage today in Mark chapter 3, we read two, uh, we'd read the account of two people groups. Uh, one is his family, another is the scribes, who look into Jesus' life, they scrutinize and they observe, and they come to false conclusions. And so that's what we're going to examine today. Through the course of it, though, I do pray that we not only see Jesus' radical courtesy for people, but that we would also be you know, motioned ourselves, to be encouraged ourselves to be able to walk in the Lord in a way that stands against the scrutiny, that, that models Christ even in the accusations. And so I pray that that's what we find today. And so we're going to look at Mark chapter 3. I want to invite Seth up, who's going to read our passage uh, for us today. Mark chapter 3 looking at verses 20 through 22. So we're looking at a short passage today. And if you are capable, would you please stand for the reading of God's word this morning? Good morning, Seth. Good morning. Um, so Mark 3, 20 through 22. Uh, Jesus entered a house and the crowd gathered again so that they were not even able to eat. When his family heard this, they set out to restrain him because they said, he's out of his mind. The scribes who had come down from Jerusalem said, he is possessed by Beelzebul, and he drives out demons by the ruler of the demons. So if you recall last week, Pastor Brett uh, led us through the previous verses um, where we see Jesus actually call his 12 apostles by name, calls them out, um, and tells them, you are apostles and you are disciples. You're going to be the ones that I'm going to send, right? And so it's a pretty big passage. We all know the names of the, uh, the apostles and uh, what they did uh, in the name of Christ by taking the teachings and the preachings of Jesus and the ministry of Jesus and just carrying it out right? And so much of what they did, I mean, we are here worshiping now because of their labor in starting uh, the early church. After that, though, apparently, afterwards, uh, Jesus, his followers, maybe his family, they all retreated to a home. And they retreated to a home, but as was usually the case, if people knew where Jesus was, then crowds would consume. The crowds would come. And these were not crowds of just happy, jolly people. Uh, a lot of times they were crowds of people full of need, full of expectation. And so the crowd was probably not calm. It was probably not relaxing. In fact, uh, the text says for us in verse 20 that Jesus entered the house and the crowd gathered again so that they were not even able to eat. So the idea is that the crowd consumed the home probably not, um, probably not by invitation, 
And so when Jesus' family either heard this or, or felt this themselves because they were there and they see once again how the crowd just imposes on Jesus and invades his space and probably invades their time with Jesus, then they decide we've had enough, we need to engage. We've got to do something here. And so in verse 21, we read this. When his family heard this, they set out to restrain him because they said he's out of his mind. He's out of his mind. And I find this very interesting. First of all, that they would even try to restrain him, right? They didn't offer to help with the crowd control. What they wanted to control was Jesus, to restrain him. Uh, this word is also translated as arrest uh, in other places of the scripture. Like literally, they wanted to go in against Jesus' own will and pull him out of what he was doing to, to, to uh, restrain him and detain him. Right? That, that's, they were just kind of fed up. Why? Well, they accuse Jesus. They say he's out of his mind. And that word there, that expression, it comes from a word that's usually translated as amazed or astounded. So I don't believe that his family actually thought he was crazy. In fact, uh, I think they knew better than most that Jesus was a specially anointed person. I do think that what they were saying is that Jesus' mental state was beyond rationality that maybe he even became a little bit irresponsible in the way that he was carrying out his ministry. Surely, there's a better way for him to do all this. One commentator put it this way. He said Jesus' family felt that he was acting irrationally because of his unconventional willingness to let others impose on him. His unconventional willingness to let others impose on him. So from their perspective, to watch Jesus tolerate and even welcome being presumed upon, imposed upon, inconvenienced, taken advantage of, all at the expense of his own well-being from their perspective. It just didn't match up with their perception of the best way for him to do what he was called to do. It felt a bit too unconventional, a bit too irrational, a bit too irresponsible, according to their comfort level and their assumptions. So this was the opinionated scrutiny of his family. He's out of his mind. He's, he's, he's not doing this the way that he should. In Mark chapter 3, verse 22, though, the scribes take it to a whole other level. There's a level of accusation here that's pretty unique and pretty dangerous, honestly. And so in verse 22, let's look at what the scribes have to say. It says, the scribes who came down from Jerusalem said, he's possessed by Beelzebul, and he drives out demons by the ruler of demons. Not he's irrational, but he's conspiring with Satan to do what he's doing. It's unreal. It's ridiculous and probably very indicative of, of, a, of an evil heart on their end to come to that conclusion about Jesus. Now, the scribes, this is one of those groups of just kind of the religious elite. When we preach and we talk about kind of the religious elite or the Jewish elite, we're, we kind of lump lots of different people into the same group. Scribes, Pharisees, Sadducees, Sanhedrin, all of these little groups that are just really the religious Jewish, you know, uppity-ups who kind of call the shots for the faith. The scribes are kind of like the lawyers of that group. Many of them Pharisees. They're experts at writing contracts, probably the very ones who wrote in the human traditions that they added to the law. And it says that they came from Jerusalem. I don't know why else they would do that unless they were there to accuse and observe and scrutinize the ministry of Jesus. So they came in from Jerusalem to just check out what Jesus is doing. And their assessment is, 
He is possessed by Beelzebul. He is driving out demons by the ruler of the demons. Now, Beelzebul is a funny word, um, and there's a lot of other variations of it in the scriptures. Beelzebub uh, is another one. In this passage, Beelzebul means Lord of Dung, which is not great, right? Um, It's a derogatory term meant for Satan. And it got that way because it comes from the word Beelzebub, that if you go back to 2 Kings in the Old Testament, you can find this Philistine God who was the Lord of the Flies. And so somehow in Hebrew history, they took that Lord of the Flies and they associated with Satan, who is the Lord over demons who are as pesky and as numerous as flies. And then they added a derogatory twist and said, he's not just Lord of the Flies, he's, he's Lord of Dung. So I'm okay with the derogatory sentiment towards Satan. But what I'm not okay with is that they accuse Jesus of being conspiring with this Lord of demons. That's a very dangerous accusation. This accusation against Jesus is is that he drives out demons because his power is satanic power. And he's possessed himself. Clearly this is absurd. And it's even dangerous. In fact, if you read later on, we're going to get to these in in future weeks. Jesus provides a response to his family and to the scribes. And his words in each case are super powerful and revealing and often very misunderstood because they are pretty harsh. So we're going to look at those. We're not going to rush through those today. But what I want to do today is for us to just consider together as a church in the same way that Jesus took on So much scrutiny, so much accusation from those around him. How are we to navigate when we experience the same thing as his followers? And let me go ahead and just say, um, followers of Christ who are overtly followers of Christ, we probably should have these confrontations sometimes. This should be a struggle for us, right? We should look different enough that people are peeking in and people are scrutinizing. And so when that happens, what do we do? When we're in our schools and workplaces and games and social gatherings and all the things that we do in our homes, even in our churches, which, by the way, is where I experience the most scrutiny. My life is surrounded by Christians all the time. So it happens happens even there. But when it happens, what do we do? What can we embrace even now that helps us in that place? And, of course, no. Let me go ahead and just say, not everyone is out there to find fault with you or to accuse you. That's not the case, but at the same time, every single thing we do as followers of Jesus Christ, everything we do, everything we say, it paints a picture for others of the Savior that we claim. So it's something to deeply consider. And the first thing I would say this is this, that for us to to walk the lines of scrutiny well, we must be absolutely convinced of what we believe. We must be absolutely convinced of the Jesus that we claim, because there's a lot of people who claim Jesus, and they can't tell you what he did. There's a lot of people who claim Jesus and they can't even tell you what he's done for them. A lot of people who claim Jesus and they don't know the gospel. So if you want to claim Jesus, like that's, that's great, but we've got to know him and be pressing into knowing him more and more and understanding why he did what he did and understanding his, his good nature. And in both of these episodes here, there's two perceptions of Christ on display. He's out of his mind and he's conspiring with Satan and they've gotten it wrong. They're both wrong. And so I want to address those two accusations here and now. First is this. He's not out of his mind. He's not irresponsible in the way that he carries out his ministry. His care for creation is supreme. His plan 
to redeem all that he has created is of the highest order of responsibility and integrity and efficiency and fulfillment. His design is completely perfect, and it's always the absolute best way. This is true for his plan in his actions in his earthly ministry. It's also true for any part of his, his, his good and perfect design, whether it be his plan for marriage, for family, for church, or his unique plan that he's given you to address your specific situation. You're going through an issue, and you ask God for wisdom. You beg him for wisdom, and he actually gives it to you. What he has given to you is a perfect plan, and it's worthy of your obedience. He's not irrational. He's completely and purely rational to himself. He might seem irrational to us because we are little. We are people. He's God. His ways are above us, and we can't know why he does the things he does all the time. So it might not seem rational to us, but he is completely and purely rational to himself. And what we believe and know is that his intent is pure, that his motives are pure and good all the time. He has a perfect reason for everything he does, whether we understand it or not. And the same is true when Jesus embraces the crowd um, in this home. He knew what he was doing. So he's not irrational. And it seems like it shouldn't need to be said, but let me go ahead and just say it. He's not evil. There's not anything in him that is evil. He is completely light, completely good. He's not conspiring with anything that is evil. Rather, he actually came to rescue us from evil. As it says in uh, Galatians chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, it says, Grace to you and peace from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from this present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father. There is no conspiring. He is not evil. And like I said, it doesn't seem like it needs to be said, but you know what? It does. Because there are trends in our world even now. It's a common thing for people to associate Christian beliefs with evil beliefs. The accusation is still present. If you are a pro-life person, then you carry the evil of hating women. That is how the world twists this stuff. If you hold to a traditional and biblical view of marriage, then you carry the evil of robbing others of love. That is how it's presented. And this is the twist, and it's becoming more and more common, and it will finger into more and more places. But despite what the patterns of the world might try to convince us, Jesus is not evil. And if we try to do what, we, what he has designed and what he has commanded, we are not either. There is no connection here. The only relationship that he and Satan have now is that Jesus permits Satan to do what Jesus wants Satan to do because Jesus is able to take all of that, all of those activities, and create deeper faith and deeper trust in, in those who love him. Right? For example, this is why nations with the most persecution are also the nations with the fastest growing churches. What Satan meant for evil, Jesus turns and makes for good and the strengthening of his people. This is why even so many of you, when you've gone through spiritual warfare and attack, that on the backside of that, your faith grows and it strengthens. What, me, what evil meant for evil, Jesus turns and means for your refinement. This is why when nominal and careless Christians leave the church, it often refines and empowers the remnant of believers that are left. So please make no mistake, Satan is just a pawn that Jesus uses to refine the faith of his people. And when Jesus is done with him, 
he's going to throw him into the lake of fire and torment permanently. That's what it says in Revelation chapter 20. So the first step in standing against scrutiny and remaining steadfast against accusation, against turbulence that might come from being a Christian, it's knowing and trusting the Christ you claim. To know and trust the Christ you claim. And I don't know anybody, honestly, who sacrifices anything for something they're half-hearted about. And that's probably true among a lot of Christians. They don't give up of much. They don't, they don't sacrifice much in the name of Christ because, honestly, they're not 100% convinced. And so if you're here and you're in this area of, of searching for the true identity of Jesus Christ, I, I want to give you some things to consider uh, in your search. And the first is this. I want to go ahead and just remove a layer here and just say that if you are, that, that if you are doubting you're in a good position. Now, I know that might seem anti-biblical. There's a lot of stuff in the scriptures that say don't doubt because if you doubt, then you waver and you're like, you know, just tossed around in the wind and the waves and all that kind of stuff. But I would go ahead and just say also that doubt's better than complete unbelief. And if your brain is shut off and your heart is closed and completely hardened, then that place of unbelief is very dangerous. But if you are at least in the place of seeking and having some doubts, but your heart is open and your mind is open, good. I'm glad. I'm glad. And so I hope that you keep pressing into that. And as you do, please give yourself the very best chance of knowing who Jesus truly is. As, you, as your heart is open to investigating Jesus, you need to fill it with Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John, just the, 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 the gospels in the scripture that tell us the beautiful character and nature and, and activity of Jesus, our Savior. And as you do that, avoid filling to your life with too much time with, with angry, bitter, joyless, hard-to-please Christians because they're not giving you a good picture of who Jesus is. Let us deal with those people. You just ignore them for a while and surround yourself and scrutinize the joyous, like, like spirit-filled, helpful, kind, loving, humble Christians. Surround yourself with them because they're gonna give you a better picture of who Jesus is. And when things start to click and when Jesus starts to, to really convince you that he is as good as everything that you're reading and everything that you're seeing, my last bit of advice to you would be this. Let faith have its way. Get out of your way. You're your greatest enemy in this. This is when it's very easy to latch on to the doubts that keep you from ever fully believing. Get out of the way. Let faith do its work. When you start falling in love with the Jesus of the gospels and of the scriptures and of, of the Christians around you who love him, let it happen. Fall in love. Believe and trust that what you are seeing and what you are reading and what you are feeling is as good as it seems because it is. It is. And you can confess of your brokenness and your sin and your belief to Jesus directly and you can ask for and receive his forgiveness and his full redemption for your life. And the Bible says that if you do that, if you call to him in faith, you will be saved. Don't get in the way of that. Let it happen. So that's my encouragement for those of you who are, who are seeking. But back to, to our uh, uh, other main point. What do we do amidst scrutiny and accusation? The first thing was to be convinced of who Jesus is. The second thing is this, is to embrace difference. Embrace difference. 
Now, in Mark chapter 2, uh, verses 21 and 22, we looked at this passage weeks ago. Jesus says, no one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the new piece will pull away from the old, and a worse tear will result. And no one pours new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and both the wine and the wineskins will be ruined. Instead, new wine is poured into new wineskins. And what Jesus is basically saying is this, that his way of ministry, his covenant, his grace, it does not fit within the existing framework of any previous religion. Certainly not Judaism of the day. What he has to offer and what he wants to do, it doesn't fit. It's new wine. You can't put it into old wineskins. It's, it's, it's new cloth. You can't sew it into old stuff. It's completely new. It's unconventional. It doesn't fit. I mean, his courtesy for other people was radical. It was completely radical. He allowed people to impose on his time and energy and space. I really struggle with that. His grace and his love were not bound to the religious regulations and standards that the people had become accustomed to. Because Jesus understood that to really reach people in their places of hurt, like their deep places of hurt, then you've got to embrace unconventional and radical methods. To tend to people's bodies and souls in a way that the religious system could never do. And I think as believers, we too should do things with humble intention that should baffle other people. Our kindness should be surprising. Our care for people should just look very different. Our love for one another should not be tempered by what others might think of us. And another way to say all of this is simply this. As believers, our way of life probably should look a little bit more like we're out of our mind. We should look like we're out of our mind. Maybe a little irrational. Maybe a little irresponsible. We should embrace this. But to be honest, like, who's got time? Who's got time for this, really? This next level version of following Jesus. I mean, it's extremely easy for believers to just sink into the ordinary chaos of schedules and work and games and extracurriculars and all the stuff that pushes faith disciplines out to the margins where, you know, Sunday mornings work occasionally and and I'll do the fastest promising, you know, daily Bible study, but like only if it's like five minutes or less, like as fast as possible. And I honestly think the people of the church would be so much better off if we took seriously the art of just creating voids. Take seriously the art of creating voids in our lives, in our schedules, in our hearts, in our desires, in our passions, in our obligations, and then to intentionally invite God to fill those spaces with something unorthodox, unconventional, unique, new to draw people into deeper places of service, more unique ways of, of serving him. And I could add to this just a few, a few anecdotes. I mean, I know a guy who, um, uh, Matt's been keeping this missionary in front of us. He's a guy who used to go here. He's a Rose student here a long time ago. And um, he just recently uprooted his whole family. And then they, they went and lived in, I think, Chicago. Was that right? In a community of, uh, of Indian people. And now they've just taken their whole family to India. Young family, young kids, uprooted everything. He's an engineer. And yet they've decided to become missionaries to India. And I think a lot of people just look from the outside in, they think, wow, that's remarkable. I could never do that. But you can if you make room for it. 
If God calls you to it and you make room for it, you can. But you know what doesn't match up for that? If this guy, if his main goal was for his kid to be the very best third grade basketball player in Terre Haute, if the main passion of his heart was to make as much money and to retire well, these things don't match up. These are the things where you have to make room in your heart and in your passions and your desires. And even me as a, as a, I guess a professional ministry person, when I heeded the call into ministry, that looked pretty irrational to some people around me. Anything that my wife and I have done to heed what we felt like God was calling us to, whether it be homeschooling or her just being a stay-at-home mom without an income, we've had people close to us who have just thought, that's a little irresponsible every step of the way. It happens. But we're fine. We're good. We have a lot of joy. We love what we're doing. We're good. I think it's just, it's more attainable than people think, but it means you can't worship other things. You have to give God room to create those voids and then intentionally invite him to fill those voids with things that are directly aligned with his purposes. So whatever that is on your heart, thinking about adoption, you're thinking about uh, uh, becoming a missionary, you're thinking about going into ministry, you're thinking about doing something else, you're thinking about just opening two nights a week so that you can host other people in your home and, and share the love of Christ with them, that's awesome and it's pretty unique and it looks different and it's exactly what we're talking about. You got to make room for it, though. You got to give up on some of the other things to make room for God to do that unique thing. And lastly, I'll say this. As we are convinced of Jesus and as we embrace difference, we have got to do it in honor. We've got to practice honor along the way. And I say it that way because that's how Peter says it in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 12, where he says, conduct yourselves honorably among the Gentiles, the unbelievers, so that when they slander you as evildoers which is exactly what we're talking about. They will observe your good works and will glorify your God on the day that he visits. I don't know if you understand that or not. Conduct yourselves honorably so that when people on the outside look in and say what you're doing is no good, that the deeper they cut, the more they're gonna see your good conduct and they won't have any choice but to say, well, this is good because you know, they'll glorify God the deeper they cut into your conduct and into your life. First Peter chapter three, verse 16 says a similar thing. That in your defense of the faith, do it with gentleness and reverence, keeping a clear conscience so that when you are accused, those who disparage your good conduct in Christ will be put to shame. They will accuse you, but what they are accusing is good conduct, and so they invite shame on themselves. And then First Peter, once again, he speaks to this a lot, chapter 4, verses 15 and 16. I love this passage. He says, let none of you suffer as a murderer, a thief, an evildoer, or a meddler. This is unnecessary suffering. And we all do a lot of things that invite unnecessary suffering. We become pigeonholed in debt. You know, we suffer under just weighty obligations. We suffer under our own perceptions of who God is as this heavy-handed legalistic thing. It's unnecessary suffering, very similar to the suffering that comes from criminal activity. Don't suffer for the wrong reasons. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in having that name. When we suffer, let it be suffer for the, suffering for the name of Christ. When we give up of things, let it be a suffering in the name of Christ. This stuff is purposeful and intentional to the glory of God. It's not purposeless suffering that just comes with living life unintentionally. So how often is our character inconsistent with our faith? How often do we suffer for pointless things? 
stress ourselves out over pointless things, feel overcome and anxious about pointless things that don't bring glory to God. These inconsistencies are confusing for other people. They do not put Jesus on display, and they open the door for unnecessary accusation. And so if we're going to embrace different, then we have got to create voids and invite God to fill them. We must also pray and invite the character of Christ, the fruits of the Spirit, love and joy and peace and patience and guidance and goodness and gentleness and faithfulness and self-control, that we would become more and more like Christ, like his Spirit, to let his Holy Spirit do this work in us. And then maybe, rather than people looking in, seeing Christians just overwhelmed by anxiety and frenzy and anger and jealousy and lust and impurity and bitterness and unkindness and anything else that Christ has already set us free from, we could prayerfully become more like Jesus Christ to invite his attitude and his character into our lives and become more like him. And when we do this, when people from the outside look in and they scrutinize and they accuse, the deeper they dig and the deeper they cut, the more of Jesus they're going to find in your life. And we praise God for that. This is the point, isn't it? Jesus tolerated so much for the good of others. He let white people walk all over his life and he healed, right? And he dispensed grace and he dispensed what the people needed, his character was flawless, though, and we don't have that going for us. We're not Jesus. But he has promised us that we've become more like him each and every day. But to do this, we've got to create those voids. He's got to fill them. We've got to be convinced of who he is. It means letting goodness and honor mark all that we do so that he might receive glory from us and those around us. And listen to this. This is awesome. When we fail, and we will fail, we will have shortcomings. We will be inconsistent in this effort. When that happens, if we are quick to apologize, humble to confess our failure, quick to ask others for forgiveness, even in doing so, even in the dealings of our shortcomings in front of other people, these become opportunities to put the gospel on display. Because after all, Jesus came to save us from everything that is impure and inconsistent about us. Try as we might to spare the name of Christ of any unnecessary accusation. We're going to fail, and even in those failings, he's going to fill it up. He can bring the glory out of that through your humility and through your confession and through handling your shortcomings as a Christian should. So we're going to end our time together with a time of response Got just a few questions for us to consider, but ultimately I pray it's the model and example of uh, Jesus who, who just, his humility and his unconventional grace and his radical courtesy to others that they, we would invite him to speak into these questions for us. Whatever that question might be for you. Consistency, humility, making room, feeling trapped in your life. Invite him into these places. And he'll do something new. So we're going to go into a time of response now. Let me pray for us, and then we'll have, we'll have that time. Our God, we commit this time to you. Fill it. God, reveal things that need to be revealed. Convince us of yourself. Father, we trust you to do this work. We trust your scriptures to lead us in this, and we trust your Holy Spirit to work within in a way that we, um, in a way that we so desperately need. 
Do something new and unconventional among us, God. Let us embrace different, all for your glory. In Jesus' beautiful name we pray. Amen. This time's yours.